Good evening, everyone. Please take a seat. And can I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14? We're going to read verses 26 to 52. That's on page 851 of the church Bibles, Mark 14. And while you're arriving there, why don't I lead us in prayer for God's help as we turn to his word. Almighty God, we pray that as we turn to your word and revisit what will be familiar truths to many of us, that you would help us to feed, to understand and appreciate afresh the depths of your love for us expressed through Jesus our King. And in his name we pray. Amen. So let's read Mark 14 and beginning at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, 
Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. The year is 1999. I'm seven years old. I'm about to watch the greatest thing I had ever seen up until that point. The venue is Barcelona. The team's playing Manchester United and Bayern Munich. The game clock was past the regulation 90 minutes and the fourth official intimated three minutes of additional time. Manchester United were losing 1-0 and a mere 180 seconds away from losing the Champions League final. Sir Alex Ferguson, the man at the helm, manager of the Manchester club, staring down the barrel of European final defeat, embraces crisis mode and makes a series of decisions that have become the stuff of legend. Spoiler, uh, Man United won, and my glory-hunting seven-year-old self is still a United fan till this day. But where on earth is this illustration going? Well, simply this, and it is tenuous, so I apologize. Leaders are revealed in a crisis. Whether it's Sir Alex Ferguson in 1999 bringing on Teddy Sheringham and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who both scored the, the winning goals, or, or whether it's Winston Churchill staring down the Nazi onslaught in the Second World War, or someone like Vladimir Zelensky, the comedian turned wartime president as a more recent example, leaders are revealed in a crisis. What about the carpenter-turned-preacher at the heart of Christianity? What kind of leader is he? Whether you're a Christian or not, you'll know lots of things, I imagine, about Jesus Christ, the figure at the center of the Christian faith. If you're a Christian, you'd describe him as your leader, your king even, but what kind of king is he? Mark wrote his gospel to answer that very question. Leaders are revealed in a crisis, and it is as we come to the end of Mark's gospel, as Jesus faces his death head on, that we come to see the kind of king Jesus is. Tonight, we're going to primarily focus our attention on Jesus' astounding prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the passage is probably familiar to many of us. Uh, that said, I was encouraged this week to consider how we can deeply feed on familiar truths. Dane Ortland was quoted already earlier. He also said this, the gospel is not 
only a one-time vaccination that spares us from hell, but food that nourishes us all the way to heaven. My prayer a moment ago and right now is that we will feed on familiar truths tonight. Two particular things we'll see from Jesus's astounding prayer and what they reveal about our King. And firstly, that Jesus knew the cost. Let let me set the scene in case we've forgotten that slightly longer reading. It's the night before Jesus's death. He knows he's about to die. He's told the disciples several times, and his death hangs heavy over the group. Jesus heads to a a familiar garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that we know from other parts of the Bible is a place he'd been to lots of times before. I imagine that if you were to ask Jesus to name some of his happy places, this would have been uh, among them. This should have been a safe space for Jesus. However, there's something different about this visit. Verse 32, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Throughout Jesus' life, and as we saw last week, Jesus is always completely in control. Nothing seemed to faze him. He he slept his way through a life-threatening storm that caused seasoned fishermen to shudder. And when woken, he rebuked the weather. When confronted with demonic spirits, he just commanded them to leave. When the religious leaders were plotting to kill him, he faced them head on, exposing their hypocrisy and sin. He has always been Mr. In Control. But now he's in agony and reduced to tears. He's falling on the ground and pleading with the Father in prayer. Verse 35, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. Why is Jesus so upset? Well, verse 36 gives us the answer. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Of course, it's not a literal cup. Jesus is referring to an image used often in the Old Testament to speak of the wrath of God on human evil. It's an image of divine justice being poured out on injustice. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 51 says, Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The the prophet Ezekiel similarly says, You will drink a cup large and deep, 
the cup of ruin and desolation. The cup Jesus is speaking of is the cup of God's anger. The story of the whole Bible is the story of humans rebelling against the rightful ruler of the world. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, we learn that though God gave us a wonderful world, we have rejected him as ruler. We've essentially declared war on God. That's at the heart of what the Bible calls sin. And being the one true God, he rightly responds in judgment. God's just response to sin is his wrath. You might say at this point, I I don't want an angry God, a wrathful God. I want a God of love. God's wrath isn't a flying off the handle, unhinged, red mist, capricious, uncontrolled rage. No. God's anger is measured. It's just. It's fair. It's entirely in control and in proportion, but it is wrath. It is just anger. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. The same thing that Jesus taught throughout his ministry. And it's the same wrath that Jesus was facing as he drew even and ever closer to the cross. The prophet Isaiah said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We often sing the words of the hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and it helpfully says, he had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Jesus had no sins, no griefs of his own to pay for. He was facing the wrath of God because of me and because of you. And so, in verse 35, he prays, if possible, that the hour might pass from him. Is it possible? Uh, Of course it wasn't. As if, in answer to his prayer, he returns to the disciples time and time again and finds them sleeping. Because verse 38, the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Uh, As willing as we are, and we know this, don't we? We know that the reality is that we are incapable of fixing the problem of our sin. We need somebody else to help us fix the chasm that exists between God and us. We need somebody else to deal with the just wrath of God for our sin. Is it possible? Of course it wasn't. As willing as we are, the really important lesson for 
us and for our world today is that with so many determined to get to God by their own efforts, to, to prove that they're good enough, that there is no other way. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We, we need to recognize our weakness and powerlessness to save ourselves. And we could spend a great deal of time on this, but the danger of doing so is that we swing the camera around to stare at ourselves and miss why Jesus is center stage. As Mark takes us through this crisis moment, he wants us to see what it reveals about Jesus. What are we seeing about him? Well, partly, as Jesus stepped into Gethsemane, he knew the cost. He knew our failure, the, the sins of the whole world. The cup that he was about to face was pressing upon him with all its devastating weight, and he knew it in its entirety. Jesus knew the cup of God's wrath, and if we need any help believing Jesus' insight into our failure, consider how much he needed to know to say what he said in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Uh, that required a lot of foreknowledge, didn't it? It needed a clear vision of the next few hours, a, a foresight of the armed mob that would descend, a bird's eye view of the disciples scattering, even to see his resurrection and his rendezvous with his disciples in Galilee. But it's even more detailed than that. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Do you see how thorough Jesus' foreknowledge was? That Peter's denial, his failure, was comprehensively known by Jesus beforehand. Is every denial numbered, set against the events of the day, and recorded with a timestamp? Jesus knew the identity of his betrayer, that, that Judas was about to walk through the gate of the garden. He knew the conversations that would happen throughout his trial, even out in the courtyard. He even knew the sounds that would dominate the backing track of Peter's denials, the crowing of a cockcrow. He knew how far through his conversation Peter would be when it happened. And then the second and the third denials and then the cockerel's fateful cry once more. Jesus' foreknowledge is so comprehensive, it comes with surround sound. And so Jesus knew also what you and I would do. He knew what happened last night, what happened 
this week, that thing for which you feel most shame, the thing you're so glad no one else knows? Uh, Jesus knows. Jesus knew. The, the foreknowledge of Jesus is so comprehensive. It comes with surround sound. Uh, there have been no acts of sin committed in the last 2,000 years that have caught Jesus by surprise. When he resolved in eternity past to go to the cross, he knew exactly what you and I would do. Things we don't even know yet, he knew. Even in Gethsemane, as he prayed that prayer, he knew the fullest depths of human sin. When he said, remove this cup from me, he knew the cup that he was facing. And we would cower in overwhelming shame if it weren't for the extraordinary way that this prayer ends. It is with that same knowledge that Jesus went on to pray, yet not what I will, but what you will. Uh, Jesus knew, he, he knew the cost, but astonishingly, he, he chose to bear it. Uh, verse 36 uh, again says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There uh, on that night, Jesus chose to bear the wrath of God, the, the wrath that we deserve. In a sense, he made that decision in eternity past. God planned this even before the world began. Jesus didn't change his mind. But there is a sense in which we see in these few verses the resolve of Jesus to face the wrath of God. His active decision to choose the cross. Isn't that what he's choosing as he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's the decision to do the Father's will, and it's a decision he had to keep making time and time again throughout that Thursday night. I'm preaching three sermons in Mark 14, and the more time I've spent in it, the more extraordinary this truth about Jesus becomes, his choosing to bear the cost. I've probably read Mark 14 a dozen times in the last month, and every time there's so many layers to spot as you come back to it. Maybe you can help me spot some more. Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane, a garden that Judas knows well. They've been there often in the past. With every extra second that Jesus spends there, he knows that he's giving Judas more time to come and find him. But he returns every time to commit himself to the Father with the very same prayer. Very, verse 39, and again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, not my will, but what you will. With every new chance to escape, Jesus stays. He stays there and resolves to bear the cost. 
The moment finally comes as Judas is outside the garden. You can picture him as he's about to go through. Jesus has still got time to escape through the other end of the garden, making a a quick getaway. He, He knows what's coming. He knows the cost. But instead of escaping, he says, verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus isn't making a run for it. Rather, he's rising to the occasion. The moment has come. Time to step up. This whole band comes running in, surrounds Jesus, armed with swords and clubs. Tell me, what would you do if you were Jesus in that moment? As Judas comes in, in all his hideous, treacherous insincerity. Wouldn't you strike him down, cast him away, save yourself from the wrath of God that is about to come the other side of Judas's betrayal? And yet, Jesus allows Judas to come, to come close, to to say rabbi, even to kiss him. The same one who knew the cost of the cup bore the indignity of the traitor's kiss. Uh, The disciples around Jesus are far less interested in letting this go ahead. One of them jumps to Jesus' aid, verse 47. But one of them who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his his ear. And it sounds like Jesus is going to to kick back as well. In verse 48, Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Uh, Jesus has got them. They're exposed. This armed rabble who claim to be doing the Lord's work are shown to be nothing more than an opportunist mob. But but then the end of verse 49. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus is saying this is going to happen. Although we could fight our way out, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus will go to his death. That's too much for the disciples. We read the chilling words of, of verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Isn't that such a devastating verse to read? Uh, The next two verses show that they'd rather run away naked than continue to hang around with this man with a death wish. And so, Jesus goes to his death, betrayed and alone, for the very people that abandoned him. For, For me, for you, even though he knew the cost, Jesus chose to bear it. Uh, leaders are revealed in a crisis, and in Mark 14, we have the greatest crisis ever faced. But we see the greatest leader who ever lived. Jesus, the King who knew the cost and who chose to bear it. It's staggering, isn't it? Jesus, the king of 
perfect obedience. Our news feeds are saturated with our leaders' failures. Isn't it interesting and such a comfort that Jesus has always perfectly obeyed God the Father? He'll never be a tabloid scandal. There will never be a sordid headline. The king who always does what is right, who always does what God says, the king who prayed even when it cost him the most, not what I will, but what you will. A king of perfect obedience and perfect courage. Here the the son of God stepped in front of the barrel of God's wrath with ample opportunity to turn back. And in every case, he would have been within his right to do so. Yet with each opportunity, it was as if he expressed that prayer once again. Not what I will, but what you will. What courage to make that choice again and again and again. Jesus, the king of perfect obedience and perfect courage and perfect love. Such love that he faced God's wrath for us. For a rebellious world. To love us so much that he's willing to accept the punishment for crimes that we have committed against him. Imagine this horrible war in Ukraine ends and Putin is tried for war crimes. Imagine then Zelensky stepping in the dock and accepting the punishment for him. It just wouldn't happen, would it? Romans verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 7 tells us something similar. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That anyone would do something so extraordinary and selfless. That anyone would show such compassion for someone who doesn't deserve it. To show such love to the very people who have done him so much harm. And yet that is what happened at the cross. It's the decision Jesus made at Gethsemane. We are those who declared war on God. We've rebelled against him. We deserve his judgment. And Jesus, knowing everything you and I have ever done, everything we will ever do, climbed into the dock for us. He knew how little we deserved it, how hard we would find to believe it, and yet wrote his compassion into the pages of history so that even we can't deny it. A permanent declaration of his love for sinners like you and me. And it's a declaration that will occupy our praises for all eternity. If you're anything like me, the temptation can be with familiar Easter passages like this one to kind of skim through them. Yep, pretty familiar, basic stuff, know it already. Might I encourage and challenge you and, and myself to feed on this precious news this week 
Leaders are revealed in a crisis, and oh, what a leader this crisis reveals. Well, let's step into the garden with the gospel writers and behold our king in 4K resolution. Let's listen carefully to the soundtrack, the soundtrack of Gethsemane. Not the snoring of the disciples, but the astonishing prayer of the king. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The, the king knew the cost and chose to bear it. His death is a sacrifice, so we might never experience the agony he went through on the cross. And so a big question for us is, will we respond like the woman of the opening verses of Mark 14, with extravagant devotion and love? And why not let such love as expressed here in the garden dominate our soundtracks this week in our service, in the way we treat other Christians who are also the recipients of God's grace in Christ, in our prayer lives that admit and recognize that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, in awe-struck thanks and praise for Jesus who willingly went to the cross for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that though he knew the cost of what awaited him, though he knew the suffering that he would endure on the cross, though he knew the cup of your wrath, he nonetheless chose to bear it for us. We thank you that his prayer ends, yet not what I will, but what you will. Help us this week to feed on the immense depths of that love. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.